In 2019, Allison Fensterstock went to Las Vegas on an assignment for Vice. She's a music journalist, and although she'd been to Vegas a bunch, it had been a while since she'd been in town. I hadn't been to Vegas in like 10 years, and I used to go in my early 20s for stuff like the Las Vegas Grind, Garage Rock Weekend, and like Viva Las Vegas, and underground things. She remembers walking through the casinos on the Strip, the famous ones that were a big deal in the 90s and the early aughts. I mean, they're still mind-blowing. Like, it's, it's just still like spectacle on an insane scale. But you felt like you were in some kind of huge mall or cruise ship. They were these, like, cavernous shopping centers. But this vibe wasn't appealing to millennials. Allison felt a shift. And I noticed that with some of the newer hotels, they were definitely leaning in towards like a cozier vibe. Again, like the cliche about millennials wanting like wellness and farm to table dining and artisanal cocktails. And it felt more like that. It felt like there was more daylight somehow in there. You know, there was like a, a record store themed bar. Vegas is starting to attract a younger crowd. Millennials who are in their 30s and 40s now have more disposable income and increasingly like to spend that money on experiences. They might not have a budget set aside for a mortgage, but they might have a travel budget or a concert budget. On this assignment, Allison was there to see a millennial favorite, an icon of the 90s and early aughts, Gwen Stefani. The funny thing was, too, is Gwen was not one of my touchstones as a teenager. When I went to that show, I was like, I'm just going to see a Vegas show. This will be cool. Like, I like Gwen Stefani. And it, like, it really blew my mind. It was so affecting. First of all, the production value was insane. It's not like a tour where the sets have to be set up and broken down night after night. In Vegas, you can have your set around a massive spiral staircase a la Titanic. And that's exactly what Gwen did. And she started the show with Hollaback Girl, and everyone was in like these banana suits with sequins on them, and she had chorus girls, and she had a white sequins cape, and she threw it off, and it was very Elvisy, and she was really, really leaning into the Vegasness of it. The show also paid tribute to Gwen Stefani's career, which at 52 years old spans three decades. She showed, like, old videos, old home movies, footage of herself talking about her career, and then she would maybe riff on it from the stage. It was nostalgic. There was a surprising intimacy to a show that feels so theatrical. And I also noticed there were so many women, like, my age in the audience with tween daughters. They were, like, so excited that maybe their daughter was finally old enough to come bring to a show and they were enjoying it together. It was like this generational thing, and it was very sweet. Allison was surprised to be so emotionally moved by it. I mean, there she was, surrounded by thousands of people, but when the closing tune, Just a Girl, came on, it's like everyone was in seventh grade again, belting out the tune in the backseat of their mom's minivan. It was not the show that I expected to be, like, so emotionally affected by. But I think that's also, that's an element of the Vegas residency. It's, it's not like you can't craft an amazing production package and take it on the road. 
But I think there is something about being able to do it in a state-of-the-art theater that you also just stay in and you're very comfortable in your space every night that allows for that kind of emotional punch. Even though there's these glitzy get-ups and this feeling that Gwen is a superstar, she still seemed accessible. There was definitely a drunk guy in the audience who was trying to tell Gwen Stefani about how he had just broken up with his boyfriend. And she was like, I'm so sorry about your boyfriend. I have to continue with my show now. But yeah, it feels like a little backstage look. But this concept of the Vegas residency as this intimate way to see the artists of your youth, it's not new. I mean, Elvis did one of the most rigorous residencies in Vegas history, selling out 636 consecutive shows from 1969 to 1976 in the International Showroom. In recordings from the time, you get a sneak peek of what it was like to be in the room. In the early years of Elvis, I think one of the things that like twisted him so badly was this intense hormonal teenage screaming energy that was thrown at him by the fans. And he was so young himself, right? So it was like, I wouldn't say adversarial, but it was sort of like these, these energies were smashing against each other, you know, and that made it very electric and very exciting and was part of what, you know, the stamp Elvis put on American rock and roll. But you hear him in the lounge at the International and he's joking, he's chill, he's making a couple of R-rated jokes. His fans were all grown up now, and they were clamoring to see him. Even though he was at the tail end of his career, his shows were a hit. And those iconic, stretchy, sparkly jumpsuits? They originated at these shows. It was a place where he let loose, literally. Like, dancing so hard, he split his pants. 60,000 people, son, I got to see that on my pants. What are you laughing at? What could happen to you? You know that, he would talk to fans like he was just sitting next to them at the bar. Sometimes he'd lean into the crowd and kiss them. It's definitely cringe looking back. You hear like little soft laughs and clinking glasses and the ice rattling around. And it just, it sounds like everyone is kind of like relaxed and grown up and having a pleasant time, you know, as opposed to this like explosion of like hormonal guitar madness. And it must have been nice for him after so many years of doing that, you know, which clearly made him really weird. At the time, the International's venue was touted as the biggest in the world, with 2,000 seats. So when we say lounge, it wasn't like a little club. That was a big departure from the residencies of early Vegas, of Liberace to the Rat Pack. It was an arena-style show. It was spectacle. Elvis would die less than a year after his residency, at the age of 42. And sadly, that might be why, in the years that followed, the Vegas residency became kind of a joke, that Vegas is where entertainers go to die. I know, harsh. But that's what this episode is about, the renaissance of the Las Vegas residency. I'm Brent Holmes. This is Spectacle Las Vegas. Welcome to True Spies. 
the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. In the 70s and 80s, the Las Vegas residency took a hit. Cher told a journalist that Las Vegas was an elephant graveyard where talent goes to die. And I mean, she was performing there, so I guess she was admitting it's not where you want to go at the peak of your career. But anyone in Vegas, or anyone in music for that matter, will tell you that the tectonic plates of the Las Vegas entertainment scene shifted when Celine Dion came into the picture. The Celine Dion residency is something that everyone I spoke to in the industry told me was the absolute game changer. Allison again. It's fascinating because it's all about taste and it's all about how popular she is, even though she is also sort of widely considered corny. But there's something like massively appealing and just warm and connective and somehow intimate about her, even though her voice is so massive. Initially, reviews of her show were mixed. Entertainment Weekly, when it announced her opening night, the lead literally asks, who says Celine Dion's not hip? It's like, um, I feel like you're saying that she's not by asking the question. And that was just the lead. This is the headline, which is even worse. Seinfeld Timberlake to help out Celine Dion. Like Celine Dion isn't the news of her own opening night. These two dudes are. What in the world? But Celine Dion had the last laugh. Her first residency, My Heart Will Go On, is the highest grossing residency of all time. And her second residency, Celine, is the second most successful residency. Combined, they grossed nearly $700 million. This makes her the highest grossing resident performer ever. You show them, Celine. Celine Dion kind of stuck her big Canadian flag in the ground in 2003, and it just did so well and and went on for so long. She would perform in Vegas for 16 years, and during that time, completely revitalized the residency. Even though some people thought Celine Dion was a bit corny, she was a big name. And that paved the way for pop stars like Gwen Stefani, Lady Gaga, and Britney Spears. Even though Celine Dion was enormously successful, it took some convincing to get other hotels to make the investment in resident musicians. There weren't a lot of big venues in Vegas like there are now. There was the Coliseum at Caesars Palace, which was Celine's spot. There was a rock hall at the Hard Rock, but that catered to more one-off nights. Then there was Planet Hollywood. It was perfect for music. 
but it was sort of dilapidated and Planet Hollywood wasn't the coolest hotel on the strip. It was owned by Caesars Palace. And so I approached Caesars Palace, spoke to the CEO, a gentleman named Gary Loveman, about would he ever consider refurbing that venue and trying the idea of bringing in modern day pop artists as a residency. That's Rob Light. He's an OG in the music industry. I'm the head of Worldwide Music for Creative Artists Agency and oversee live music, comedy, podcasts. That modern-day pop artist that Rob was suggesting to Planet Hollywood was his client, Britney Spears. Britney had just come off a major tour, and the idea of going around the world on one-nighters didn't appeal to her anymore. You know, she had young children. The grind of the road wasn't appealing to her. And so I had this notion that she would be the perfect artist to appeal to that nightclub audience. At the time, Vegas demographics were shifting. You had the older audience who might take in a Penn & Teller show in Cirque du Soleil. Then you had the younger audience who was looking forward to partying with DJs like Tiesto or Calvin Harris. We were trying to figure out where did all those kids go between the time they were at the swimming pool till one o'clock in the morning because they weren't going to what was then the adult contemporary shows. And that was the sort of epiphany of, wait a second, if we ever put a show in that appealed to that demo, those kids would go. And how do we create what would be a modern day residency for one of those artists? He thought Britney in the right room would be a hit. So he's talking to the CEO of Caesars, Gary Loveman, about renovating Planet Hollywood. Gary Loveman said, if we're going to do this, how do we know the room will be full? If we do Britney, who will fill up all the other weeks? And I said to him, I promise you that within two years, you won't have an empty week. And I'll be calling you, begging you for dates, and you won't have any. Caesars eventually agreed to refurbish Planet Hollywood for Britney. They took a calculated risk based on Rob's hunch. Initially, just like with Celine, people were skeptical. In New York Magazine, pop critic Jody Rosen questioned if Britney's fans would make the journey to Las Vegas like older audiences did for Celine Dion and Elton John. She called the residency a quasi-retirement move. Damn. All right. Britney's show promised 24 of her greatest hits, lip-sync-free singing and top-tier choreography. Britney opened in 2013. It was a monumental success. You know, you couldn't get a ticket. It's where every bachelorette party wanted to go. It was where every 20-something wanted to go. And it became one of the hottest tickets in Las Vegas. Just four months in, the media was heralding it a hit. She was selling out the 4,600-seat theater night after night. A year in, Caesars gave Britney her own holiday. November 5th is Britney Day. Now, we want to acknowledge that in 2022, we know a lot more about Britney's life. She was in a tightly controlled conservatorship and has since said she had limited freedoms during that time. Only going out twice in four years and being forbidden from consuming coffee. So we're sort of looking at this period through 2013 glasses. Just like Celine Dion, Britney's residency in Vegas was a game changer opening doors for popular singers like J-Lo, Janet Jackson, and Bruno Mars. The thought now that Lady Gaga and Bruno and the Backstreet Boys and Aerosmith and 
scorpions and I mean the, the list of artists who do residencies there now would have been unthinkable 10 years ago. Las Vegas is now a market for huge pop stars. I mean, that's all Britney. Britney's success led to the building and the opening of the Park Theater at the MGM Grand, to the refurb of the Coliseum to make it look a little bit younger and feeling better, the building of Resorts World, which has its own 5,000-seater. The great thing about Britney is that she didn't just appeal to millennials who grew up with her. She appealed to everyone. Gen X and boomers who were already there were like, hey, sure, I'll tack on Britney Spears one night. That sounds fun. If you're going to a convention in Las Vegas, you're excited about your convention, but you're immediately thinking, what is there to do at night that I couldn't see anywhere else? And so that fills in another hole. But the difference between Celine Dion and Britney Spears was that she was a modern pop star, someone who was still making new music and charting during her residency. When Britney started Piece of Me, I think she was also 34, you know, or 32 or something. She was the same age as Elvis. And I mean, I'm older than her, but I didn't think of her as, you know, an aging star at all or someone at the end of her career. And this is way before we knew what was going on in her life. Britney and Lady Gaga were both in their early to mid-30s when they started performing in Vegas, just like Elvis, the Elvis that was considered sad and washed up. And it's just funny how just how we think of artists and how much we let them, you know, grow up and evolve now as opposed to the way the industry maybe did in Elvis's time. For Britney, it wasn't the end of her career. It was a revival of it. It was a leveling up phase. And Gwen Stefani, in her 50s, is still performing shows at the level she was decades ago. It was like a retrospective of almost 30 years in pop music life, and it was still really energetic and still youthful and definitely not like, you know, I mean, it was a stroll down memory lane, but it wasn't from someone who you thought of as like this like desiccated old husk or anything. You know, these are very vibrant women at the peak of their performing power, which, I mean, I think in, in many ways Elvis was as well when he did that show, but the perspective on him was different and the way the industry had worn him down, of course, was also different. Now, Vegas isn't a death sentence. It doesn't mean your career is over. It's an opportunity to connect with your fans in a way that you can't do on tour in massive stadiums. You can get comfortable when you have a home, when you're at that stage night after night. In the future, Rob could see musicians making their shows even more intimate. There may be artists who think, I don't want to do a big over-the-top show. And so to strip it all back, you know, like Garth Brooks did when he played that 1400-seater, fulfilled an itch for him. It was him and a guitar. And so I don't know that I can tell you what's the next thing. What I can promise you is that live is always going to be an important part of Las Vegas. It's always going to be an important part of the human experience. Live entertainment will always be key to Vegas. But now, dead entertainment is available too. Whitney Houston has a residency at the Flamingo. Well, her hologram does. An Evening with Whitney features a hologram of Whitney Houston singing hits like I Will Always Love You and I Want to Dance with Somebody. So live entertainment, dead entertainment. In Vegas, you got it all. Next time on Spectacle, we'll have a special guest. Our season one host, Mariah Smith, who, guess what, is hosting season three of Spectacle. 
She's coming on to discuss a dark side of Vegas and give us a hint of what's to come in season three. It boggles the mind because this man is a textbook serial killer. But then part of me is like, why doesn't he have more attention? Why isn't he getting the Ted Bundy treatment? You won't want to miss it. Spectacle Las Vegas is a production of Neon Hum Media. The show is hosted by yours truly. This episode was produced by Liz Sanchez and Navani Otero. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Spectacle's senior producer is Joanna Clay. Our associate editor is Stephanie Serrano. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Original music by Hans Dale Sue. And special thanks to Tanner Robbins, Vikram Patel, Shara Morris, Odelia Rubin, Chloe Chobel, and Catherine St. Louis. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Neon Hum Media. I'm Brent Holmes. Y'all come back now, you hear? Spectacle Las Vegas is brought to you by the backseat of your mom's minivan. 